This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the Bancroft Prize-winning historian Greg Randon about his new book, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. It is an extraordinarily illuminating book, Greg, one that tells us how, why, and where we are today, not only along the southern border with Mexico, but also within the gates of a society overrun by reactionary populism and racist nationalism and revolutionary barbarism. Perhaps you can begin with the origin of the myth. Where is it and where from? Well, the myth is the frontier and the frontier itself. And what's interesting about the the concept of a frontier, for, for centuries in English, the word frontier really just just meant boundary or border or national front. It wasn't until the end of the 19th century that it began to take on this significance, a kind of zone of existential creation, a meeting line between savagery and civilization. And really, it was um, associated with the historian Frederick Jackson Turner, who gave a famous paper in 1893 at the Chicago World's Fair, the World's Fair that was made famous by the serial killer captured in Eric Lawson's The Devil in the White City. And, um, and Turner's paper argued, and in very simple but powerful terms, that everything that was good about America, its political equality, its coarse curiosity, its mutualism, wasn't imported wholesale from Europe, as as the more Brahmin elite historians that preceded Turner would have it, but it was actually forged in America, and specifically on the frontier, in the wilderness. And this captured a phenomenon that was long predated Turner. Turner was really capturing a process that that began prior to the foundation of the United States and and central to the argument of the book and central to how we need to think about the United States is that no other nation, no other nation that identifies itself as anti-colonial and anti-imperial or even we could say no other empire colonial power itself has had the prerogative of constant expansion and being able to use the promise of constant expansion to organize domestic politics. And if if anything makes the United States exceptional or unique, it's that. It's this constant ability to move forward in the world, a real social experience, and then the mythology of that experience, of which Frederick Jackson Turner is the highest expression, is most famous for it, is what became known as the frontier thesis. Right. The, the facing west meant facing the promised land, where in Eden, where the American, the new Adam, could imagine himself free from nature's limits, society's burdens, history's ambiguities. Yeah, it would all be resolved. All and, be resolved. And they, they, go know, west, young Go man. west. We, we've gone from go west to go away, and that's the, that's the, that's the arc of the book. Okay. <laughs> and, of course, this kind of idea. So, so how, how do we see it in, in the early going in, in uh, colonial America? How does, how does this idea 
show up and you know well the foundation of colonial america in the yeah. early 1600s was a was a process of expansion and and that process was mythologized in theological terms uh it was contradictory the foundation of 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 societies in virginia and new england were understood either as escaping these theological bloody battles in Europe associated with the Reformation or um, or creating new battlefields in which to win those battles. I mean, it really didn't matter what one's particular theological position was about moving west and creating new communities. What mattered is that is that um, is that moving itself was understood in redemptive terms. It was either understood as an errand into the wilderness or an escape from the bloody uh, battles of Europe and and the corruptions of Europe. And to jump forward a little bit to the founding of the United States, you can look, so a lot of that thought secularizes and throughout the 1600s and the 1700s and, and, and begins to find itself in what we think of as some of the founding premises of the United States. The premise and promise of expansion was built into the founding fathers' way of thinking about what was unique and different about the United States. We can, you know, three of them in particular: Benjamin Franklin in the in the in the mid 1700s sketched out what might be thought of as a, a rudimentary political economy um, that that was a way of escaping a kind of gloom uh, related to the idea of population growth, where in the where in Europe. If you had a large family, you were screwed. You, you know, you you pretty quickly hit your carrying capacity. Yeah. And yeah. Went, so Franklin understood that what was unique about the, the United States is that is that you that breeding large populations would actually not lead to poverty and immiseration, but prosperity. Because as soon as you hit the carrying capacity of any given farm, you could just you could just push off your yeah. surplus families, your children, right. your grandchildren yeah. further west. And and for for for, for Franklin, the, this meant that labor would never be cheap because workers would always have some leverage in demanding higher wages. There would always east. be work to be done, yeah. right? And jump forward a little bit to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson's very first political tract a few years before the Declaration of Independence, a summary view, he argued that um, that the, the right to move and immigrate wasn't just a natural right, it was the foundation of natural rights. And he understood he understood it as a kind. It was kind of a moral history linking back to his Saxon uh, ancestors, who who were able to leave Germany when feudalism began to weigh heavy on their freedoms, on their natural-born freedoms, and go to the British Isles and the British Isles to America. So this moving west was built into the idea of um, of of of, of a, it was a precondition, a condition of possibility of American freedom, the right to immigrate. And this is also part of his idea of America. And exceptionalism. Yes, yes, and 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 then you and then you know a third kind of um, think another important thing was James Madison, of course, in Federalist Number Ten, and he, you know, Republican theorists at the time thought that you could only have republicanism in a small space, that you that too big, too large a territory would introduce too too many. Uh, competing interests and, and, and corruptions, and it would wear down on Republican virtue. Madison's brilliance is that he flipped that idea on its head, and he said that the best way to, 
to maintain Republican virtue is to what he called extend the sphere, and you know, and then you can, you know, then then you will di- dilute and 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 disperse factionalism and extremism. You can bring in other interests, but as long as the sphere keeps getting bigger, those interests won't won't coalesce into what we would call what we would now call populist extremism they, they, you know and and he would he didn't use the term the term wasn't popular was it was it was this a little bit of not uh, um, this is wasn't a current term at the time but what he was talking about was class conflict he was talking about um, you know uh, the propertyed uh, people how would they defend themselves from a majority of not just unpropertyed but indebted uh, citizens who who within a republic would start to make demands on and challenges to their property and so madison's madison's solution was was extend the sphere uh, move west and you'll and 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 you'll you'll divert the factionalism and also i think jefferson also says that extend the sphere but remember it's always going to be white Yes. So implicit in all of this is implicit and explicit is an Anglo-Saxonism. When you know, all of these thinkers imagine the United States moving west and hitting the Pacific and filling itself out a- along the continent. They wanted Florida. They wanted Texas. They wanted they wanted Canada. And Jefferson was open. I mean, Jefferson and other founders talked about they you know they imagined a continent scoured white. I mean, Franklin talked about scouring the planet white. Jefferson and talked about imagining a continent without a blot. You know, obviously the problem with that is that there were quite a number of people of color and come, there were both the, both the growing importance of the slave trade and the slave economy, but Native Americans and then Spain and, Mexican, and, Mexico, and then Mexico. You have a chapter called A Caucasian Democracy and you tell us a story, an incident that you come back to a number of times. It, so it's, in in your mind, a uh, meaningful incident, which is the one with Andrew Jackson on the Natchez Trace, leading a coffle of slaves. Tell yeah. me that story. Yeah, this was in 1811. This was before, or maybe I think it was around 1811. Right, right on the on the threshold of when Jackson would start to make a national name for himself as a warrior and an Indian killer, and 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 in the War of 1812 against the British. Jackson was a was a, a frontier lawyer, slaver trader um he was based in nashville he was he he um you know another interesting story about jackson is that he was as far as i know the only president to swear allegiance to a foreign policy he pledged allegiance to spain in this in 1789 because because um because spain was liberalizing the slave trade in the caribbean and he wanted access to that market and he felt that the that the emerging constitutional government wouldn't wouldn't back in washington wouldn't do enough to protect his interests but in 1811 he he was he was moving a slave coffle. A coffle is a, 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 it's a line of it's a line of slaves with chains around their, their neck, neck, walking yeah. in single yeah. file. As far as we know, he's the only pre, only president to have actually transported a, 
a slave Cothel on his own on on Natchez Trace. The Natchez Trace was a was an Indian road. It was it was uh, it, w- it was it ran through Native American communities that had federal treaties, and and it was nominally autonomous, but you know in in that in that very nebulous way that that indigenous sovereignty um, at that moment was understood. There was a federal agent. Uh, federal agents were assigned to monitor the road to make sure that no illegal slavery went through, no escaped slaveries passed through. And so one agent along the line um, in 1811 had the audacity to ask Andrew Jackson uh, for his papers. Uh, 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 he wasn't trying to stop him. He wasn't trying to, he wasn't telling him to turn back. He was just asking if he had the, the, the paperwork. It was like asking for your driver's license. Uh, for the for the slaves that he was carrying through, and and Andrew Jackson responded with a kind of bellicosity that we that that has echoed down the centuries that we associated with a certain kind of white uh, supremacy, the audacity of of being. And so uh, Jackson apparently responded one story. I have I have my papers here. One story has him pulling out the Constitution and saying, "This is the only paper I need." A free man. And uh, another story has him taking out his guns and saying, yeah. "Here's the here's my permission slip." And <laughs> and um, and uh, and then you know, it, I mean, it, you know, this this is a certain kind. This is a theme that runs through the book because it it captures a certain kind of of, of definition of white supremacist freedom, right? Freedom from restraint. And the idea that somehow just being asked to show papers for owning slaves is a, is being equated with slavery itself. Because Jackson later on writes, you know, is this a dream or is it real? Am I a slave or am I a free man about this incident, right? You know, it, it, this, this is a very recognizable you know, uh, bellicosity, you know, uh, that, that, that finds expression in, in, a, in the strand of aggressive libertarianism that runs through U.S. political culture. And it, it's there very early, is the point. Yeah, it's yeah. there very early on the frontier, and it's yeah. and it's it's there. It's there. It's uh, part of the frontier myth. Yeah, and it's part of the even even the, but even the more high minded and high born like Thomas Jefferson, the 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 idea of freedom as freedom from restraint. Who, yeah. Who's going to stop us from moving west? I mean, you know, in the book I talk about the American Revolution as a reaction to the British attempt to pen in white settlement east of the of the Alleghenies. Yeah. You know, and that and that that was outrageous and unacceptable to the high born and to the and to the more and to the you know the 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 the, the, the more lower classes you know, and that's won. also the spring of the war the war of 1812 that is the springboard of the war of 1812 and yes you move on to the next chapter the safety valve what's the safety valve it's part of Franklin's idea. Well, Franklin didn't use the phrase "safety valve," uh, but he was certainly his his idea that the, the that being able to move west allowed the United States to escape what would later be called the Malthusian trap and Malthusian pessimism. Certainly was was understood in those terms. Safety valve was um, you know, was just then the real safety valve was just then actually being forged welded onto boilers on steamships that were opening up the wests and and then obviously on later on 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 railroad engines but it worked its way into political discourse as a metaphor 
um, that came to be associated. It was used in different ways. At first, it meant to, at first, attend, in the 1820s, it tended to refer to the workings of procedural democracy, free speech, the multi, you know, checks and balances, yeah, yeah. you know, were all part of uh, the safety valve of the system. But by the 1830s, it became it became to be used almost exclusively to talk about moving west, the way the west served as a safety valve. And the point I make is um, everybody, for everybody, being able to vent west uh, solved different problems. And it didn't matter whether you were pro-slavery or anti-slavery, whether you matter the safety valve as, 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 uh, as giving workers better leverage in, in wage demands, as, as siphoning off excess population. Uh, what was important is that it, it, it confirmed this notion that the problems of the East would be solved through movement in the West, right? Oh, and so yeah. it, it, was, it was a very powerful image. Next chapter, you talk, you say, the title of the chapter is, Are You Ready for All These Wars? And I, if I remember correctly, you're quoting Samuel, I'm sorry, uh, Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams. Yeah. John Quincy Adams, who was, who was the president before Andrew Jackson, he was the last president of what might be thought of as the Coastal or the Founders Coalition uh, before he lost out a one-term presidency to Andrew Jackson, and Jackson represented the rise of frontier interests and slaver interests. Um, you know, it's a uh, John Quincy Adams was a president that imagined that had a program of national improvement. I don't want to romanticize him, but he imagined using profits from Western lands to build canals and roads and schools and hospitals. You know, he had a he had a national vision, and he, and uh, and he was and he lost Andrew. Jackson basically, you know, saw the West as as basically a grab, uh, 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 just a giveaway to his white settlers, right? Just move west, and um, but then he was elected to the House from Massachusetts, and he spent the rest of his life sitting as House. I mean, he grew increasingly radicalized. He grew increasingly radicalized as he saw the Jacksonians move to annex Texas, move to war with Mexico, and um, and you know. John Quincy Adams believed in expansion. He he has some great great classic quotes of you know of of you know from the Atlantic to the Pacific. God has given us this continent, you know. But he he grew increasingly radicalized about over Jacksonian expansion, and he gave this speech in nineteen thirty in nineteen I'm sorry eighteen thirty six from from the House floor that might be one of the most radical anti war speeches in the nation's history, in which he addresses it to the slaveholder in the chair, James Polk is a Jacksonian a speaker of the House, and it's it's a series of rhetorical questions, and one of them, are you ready for all of these wars? He basically laid out, I mean, he, you know, he sounded like Ward Churchill after 9-11. He basically morally justified indigenous retaliation against whites in that speech. He said that the scalping of white, uh, white settlers by Native Americans is God's retribution. He, um, he expressed two fears. One was that the nation would rip itself apart through moving west. Um, uh, uh, would divide over slavery, and, and which it did, or his other fear was that would hold itself together, that constant war on the frontier, racist war on the frontier, would bind 
the nation together in inequity, in, in iniquity, um, in a kind of racist um, solidarity. And uh, it was, he, he, um, he basically laid out a vision of endless war that, start, that he understood as starting with an Andrew Jackson's destruction of the Creeks. And, and then he, he imagined a war with Mexico, which happened, and then he imagined a war with Spain, and 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 he used the phrase recoil, which was a precursor yeah. to um, to what we would think of as as, as blowback. Chalmers Johnson's uh, well, that's borrowing. kind of where we are now. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get we'll get there. But yeah. I mean, so it was a, re- a remarkable speech. It was really really a remarkable speech. He's very prescient. He said, "The more I read about John Quincy Adams, the more I get to admire him." I mean, I've been reading other books about him. And yeah. And the, uh, He's very clear-sighted. Oh, and his diary entries are a wonder. I mean, they're just they just clear-eyed and 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 caustic and. Okay, so come now to the after the Civil War, which of course is one of the wars that Adams foresaw, to the your chapter, the Outer Edge, and the presentation of Turner's thesis in 1893, which then becomes the basis of. Yeah the way American history is conceived and taught from that day to this. Yeah. So Turner is, is, is born in Wisconsin, raised in Wisconsin, in a provincial town. Um, he, uh, he presents his significance of the frontier in American history in 1893. To back up just a second, what hap- what begins to happen in the 19th century is that the border delinks from the frontier so frontier up until Tur- not you know, the eve of turner largely means um a boundary a a, a border a ne- a, a, ne- a security front a military front um it's cognates in other languages particularly spanish frontera just means border and it doesn't it doesn't signal this zone of of a of liminal zone of creation of of self creation um what what allows a delinking and redefinition of the word frontier is the mexican american war Mexican-American War, where the U.S. takes most of Mexico, nor, certainly all of northern Mexico, and fills itself out to the Pacific, establishes what becomes more or less the boundary, the United States' southern border, uh, along with the Gadsden Purchase. So by the 18, late 1840s, 1850s, the United States has a border, and that border stays fixed. It's no longer moving. It's no longer evolving. It's no longer nebulous. It's fairly well-defined. The frontier, though, keeps going west, and all in, in, in the continuation of the Mexican-American War as a series of Indian Native American pacification wars, all the way to California. So this delinking of the border from the frontier okay. allows the frontier to kind of float free as an abstraction, and Turner's Turner is the one who solidifies it. I mean, others had others had started to use the word frontier prior to Walt Whitman. Uh, when he gazed upon that epic portrait of I can't remember the artist of um, of, uh, uh, of the, George Custer and yeah. Little Bighorn, you know, yeah. surrounded yeah, by yeah, what yeah, by yeah. what Walt Whitman called a, a hurricane of demons, talk says it has a great line: "America, comma the frontiers." You know, yeah. so there's a way in which the frontier is already yeah. getting loaded on with all the word is being loaded on with all of this meaning, but it's but it's Turner that 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 really does he does two things. One is um, he 
he de-racializes it. Now, Turner was setting aside his own personal views. I mean, obviously, he was prejudiced. His, his father was a, was an eliminationist and who called for the removal of the Winnebagans in Wisconsin, which apparently Turner witnessed as a young man. But up until that time, histories of the West, people like Theodore Roosevelt particularly, celebrated the violence they you know they they yeah. they, they you know, i mean roosevelt theodore roosevelt thought i mean he clearly understood the destruction of the creeks as but the latest battle in a war that started a century early when the saxons left the left the forests of germany yeah. and went into britain and he 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 thought war against nature against 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 native americans against one's own base instincts was the foundation of civilization and it was it was you know turn there was none of that wolfian vision in turner turner was very pacific you know it was it was commerce it was transportation it was law yeah. that that made possible the frontier and why this is important is because the united states is about to launch itself into the world you know 1893 you know yeah. 5 years after he gives us Five years after he gives his his uh, his paper at, at in Chicago, the U.S. the U.S. Uh, invades the Philippines, invades Cuba, annexes Puerto Rico, start, and, you know, Hawaii. and yeah. Hawaii. You know the, the United States is about to, and and you can't administer the world as if it's the Louisiana Purchase writ large, as if it's Indian removal writ yeah. large. Yeah. You know, so Turner's Turner lays the foundation for way of thinking about the 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 frontier as as moving away from anglo-saxonism to universalism out into the out into the out into the world right so world. i mean uh, you know uh uh by downplaying it all by you know so so uh so even if you acknowledged the violence and terror and misery and ethnic cleansing that westward expansion entailed you could credibly argue that 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 moving forward into the world would leave racism behind as a remnant uh, and and other forms of and marginalized extremism that you know that that uh, that the U.S. was becoming more liberal, more tolerant, extending more, the sphere, extending the sphere and becoming more universal, more um, more you know uh, shaking off its Anglo-Saxonism, you know, and and there's some. You know, that's not untrue. The courts, the legal system is beginning to purge itself of explicit Anglo-Saxonism. Native Americans are understood finally to be understood not just as citizens, but people. Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans in 1917 uh, granted the rights of citizenship. There, There is a there is a gradual um, there's a cultural pluralism of the New Deal. Uh, there is the beginning of a of a of a of a of a move towards universalism but the argument of my book is that even as this frontier universalism is moving forward in its highest expression one strand of the brutalism and the barbarism that that outward movement was said to be left behind was concentrating on the border itself so this is the kind of dialectical movement between the frontier and the border that the book tries to tries to tries to work, and, and work you, along and you also have what you call the chapter I, I think but this is part of that is it's the the pact of 1898 yeah where the confederates get back on this how, how does that quite work 
Well, part of the argument in the book is that the, I mean, front expansion does many things. It, 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 it's, it's almost overdetermined in all of the work it does. It doesn't, you know, it's hard, you know, the problems that expansion solves are many. It, it takes the violence and extremism of past wars and rolls them over into the next war. It, 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 it allows the foreign policy to be the venue in which moral ideas for how to organize society get worked out. Um, but expansion also reconciles contradictions and tensions within political coalitions. And this is nowhere more clearer than the War of 1898. The War of 1898, Washington goes to war with Spain. And um, and and uh, this is Teddy Roosevelt's involved in the uh, San Juan Hill. Uh, yeah, not San Juan. Um, uh, San Juan Hill? Yeah. The Battle yeah. of San Juan Hill. Yeah. The Rough Riders, all that stuff. The U.S. Uh, turns Cuba into a neo-colonial possession, annexes Puerto Rico, which it still has to this day, annexes the Philippines for 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 decades, and and gets bogged down in a in a bloody insurgency, counterinsurgency, and um and this war was the first war that really allowed the sons and even old Confederates readmission into the Union, uh, uh, through the military. You know, the, the, the Confed what was the Southern states were very well represented in West Point prior to the Civil War. They were very active in the war in Mexico, for instance. Men Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were 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 key leaders in the Mexican American War. But they were purged. There was a, there was a purge after after the Civil War. Um, the pacification of the West against Native Americans allowed rank and file Confederates back in. Um, the sons and 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 the, uh, you know, but really it was too early to 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 allow them back into the officers' class. The War of eighteen ninety eight allows full admission, and it was sold and 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 understood in po in po in poetry and songs and in, in newspaper prose and books and speeches. It was overtly understood as a war that reconciled North and South, you know, that brought them back together. And it allowed the South to fold in its narrative and kind of um, reach weak its, its war of uh, sedition against in defense of slavery into a longer history of U.S. war. Now, now they became agents of, of, of freedom because now they, was, they were freeing the vassals of the Spanish Empire. So the War of 1898 is absolutely crucial in this kind of coming together of the Confederate, the Confederacy in the North and this kind of sectional. Uh, but it's also important in the sense that the military becomes a key venue of social mobility in all of the wars that follow and and just to jump ahead a little bit that's the that's one of the important things uh, crucial things about Vietnam it's where this pact of 1898 breaks down in the racial violence of Vietnam and Martin Luther King and all of that but 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 the war of 1898 is 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 central in this reconciliation and it's and it's part of a larger argument of the way expansion allows uh, allows national uh, helps organize domestic politics. Let, let's skip forward to to Vietnam. I mean, the if you think you can do that, I mean, sure. because there there are a lot of Confederate flags flying, as I remember, in Vietnam. Yeah. Explain what happens to the pact. Well. Confederate flags fly in every war after 1898. They fly in Nicaragua. They fly in the Philippines. They fly in World War One. The Confederate flag was the first flag uh, unfurled over Okinawa 
or at least over the Japanese high command in Okinawa. Um, and it was done so uncritically without anybody, with just a little, with just a little dissent. That begins to change around Korea. And obviously Korea, I mean, the Confederate flag is still everywhere during the Korea conflict. But with civil rights beginning to move forward in the United States, there's a beginning of a critique of, of the flying of the Confederate flag military. Now, civil by the time you get to Vietnam at home, civil rights has, has gone yeah. well past its, its more... Its more um, obliging phase and it becomes more and its demands become more militant and in in all sorts of ways and and that refracts in Vietnam and so the so the flying of the confederate flag in Vietnam transforms from being a banner of reconciliation a pennant of of a kind of now unified nation to one of this increasingly you know once again it 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 becomes a a symbol of of a of a kind of uh, aggrieved section of the country and um and Martin Luther King's death is a is a is a is a turning point in this when he's assassinated on April 4th uh, 1968 confederate flags and 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 clan crosses go the flags go up all over Vietnam and clan crosses burn all over Vietnam King King had lost faith in the American frontier ideal by that time I mean you have it in your book. I don't know if you have it in your head, but King's speech at the, I think St. John the Divine. Yeah. You know, do, do you remember what he was say, saying about? Oh, the, it was April fourth, nineteen sixty-seven. Exactly yeah. one year to the day he was assassinated. Exactly one year, which is so. King King was close to the peace movement. Coretta Scott King Coretta Scott King was actually a Henry Wallace delegate in nineteen forty-eight in Antioch, and she was she was she was um, she was very much she understood what she was doing as as kind of a peace internationalism. King kept quiet for a long time because of an alliance with the Democratic Party. And and be, because of his insistence of trying to uh, work with um, first Kennedy and then LBJ in moving forward civil rights legislation, but um, but he in, he increasingly had a crisis of conscience. He couldn't keep silent anymore, and he started to speak out actually before that St. John the Divine speech um, in in late um, in in late 1966, and uh, and and this was a schism. You know, in the book I, that I said that was worthy of his name, because King didn't just break with the Democratic Party over Vietnam. His speech was called Beyond Vietnam. He broke with the whole uh, compact which understood war and militarism as a way of gaining liberal, uh, pro- gaining gaining progress at home, right? I mean, one of the arguments of the book is that it's been through war and through the militarism through which most Periods of reform have managed to leverage and get and get and get some benefits and get some traction at home. African Americans began joining the military in 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 decent numbers after that War of 1898, and um, the military became the main venue of social mobility for African Americans right. and for poor whites. And um, and then and then there's other ways in which um, you know the Cold War was obviously a lever in which in which civil rights leaders would go along with the premises of the Cold War in order for a fitful advance of liberalism at home. So King's dissent 
broke that was was you know it, it was remarkable and one of the things that i tried to do in the book is linking it up to john quincy adams's speech i call it a call and response across the centuries where john quincy adams saw the beginning of a forever war that would bind the nation together in 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 um in immorality king king answered and and said yes it has that's exactly what happened um king called war a demonic suction tube that uh, he has these great lines about the flamethrowers that are used uh, in Vietnam will burn at home. The bombs that are dropped over there will explode over here. So King is King. I use King as a way of capturing this argument that um, you know the dialect, the, the the paradoxical tension between war being the an expansion being the agent of progress, but also being the backlash to our progress. And and King King saw that in 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 start in startling terms. I mean, he was he was, you know, the 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 whitewashing of King as a, as a, and the expunging of his critique of the military state is is but quite remarkable. The idea of the ever expanding limitless frontier, sort of since World War II, has not only been part of our foreign policy, extending the sphere, but also it's become a major motive in, in, or, or metaphor in the sciences and, yeah. and, and politics and yeah. the whole notion of the... Uh, yeah, I mean, um, we can maybe come back to the New Deal, but certainly after the New Deal, uh, there was a rehabilitation of the... Cons and after the U.S. won World War II, there was a rehabilitation of the idea of the frontier in cultural terms, and psychological terms, in, in technological terms. The splitting of the atom was understood as a new frontier. Um, uh, and And... The argument of the book is the expansion isn't just military, militarism or war. It's also market expansion and technological expansion. So the idea that um, the U.S. coming out of World War II, that the United States had managed to found a new kind of world power in which, um, in which all could benefit and all could rise up. The pie would continually grow. The promise of endless growth as a way of organizing domestic politics. Um, Truman in 1950 said we have the power of clean wiping out poverty off the face of the earth. You know, that was understood in the language of the frontier. And there was a technological basis for this. The Green Revolution and technology did allow for the rapid expansion of uh, productivity when it came to agriculture. So the the idea was um, this technological uh, advances after World War II would allow for a move away from the class conflict of the New Deal, from the class conflict right. of the Mexican Revolution. The way we're gonna the way we're gonna bring about social justice is by expanding the pie, not not <laughs> dividing but, into factions and classes and fighting over the pie. But that was good rhetorically, but it didn't work out in practice. No, it didn't work out in practice in any in any in any fundamental way. I mean, uh, you know, people might argue that living standards in certain countries rose in Brazil and you know and and you know the Green Revolution in India and you know and 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 uh, you know food production in Mexico, uh, but certainly the the well two things the the cycle of coups and violence in, in, in during the Cold War outside of the core regions of the Cold War certainly indicated a level of conflict that that um, that 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 denied that we were in some golden moment. And um, and two, if you just look at the 
just look at the distribution of resources. The U.S. U.S. is U.S. was whatever the percentage of its population, uh, the ratio between the percentage of its population and its consumption of resources yeah. is just was just staggering. I mean, obviously this was a, this was you know the, the United States was not first among equals. The United States was dominant in a larger in a larger system that presumed that justified itself on universalism, but was far from universal. No, I mean, George Kennan sends a memorandum around the State Department in 1948 saying that America has 6% of the world's population and 50% of its wealth, and our policy is to keep it that way. Yeah, that's a famous memo, and in the book I, I make I pa- make me- passing reference to it, but there's also another great memo that Claire, Bo- Claire Luce Booth sends to her husband, Henry Luce. Henry Luce was editor of Time and Life, and, and you know he was he's famous for his um, column on his essay on the American century, which lays out the principles of this kind of new type of world power in which everybody's going to benefit. The U.S. is going to superintend a new kind of world order. And um, and you know again setting aside whatever his own personal prejudices, the assumptions of that is that it's it's race blind, it's deracinated. Yeah. His wife Claire sends a memo saying, you know, the U.S. does have to preside over a new world order, but 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 that world world order has to be organized on explicitly Anglo-Saxon lines, right. an alliance with Great Britain. And there were a lot of people who understood. And she, and what's great about that memo is that she says the frontier's closed. You know, the, the world, you know, that there, there's not enough to go around. And um, and there is going to be competition and power struggles over resources. And and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. And um, and, Kenan, and it's along the lines of Kennan's memo. And there were other people who thought like this. Um, you know, today that's a that's a school of thought or a line of thinking that today uh, some some um, theorists call race realism, right? right? And 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 I would say it was and it it, it is the fa- it's it undergirds what is now Trumpism, but we can yeah, get to yes, that later. It, so yes, let us get from there to Trumpism and where we are now, and and you know the we've reached the end of the myth. Yeah. And when did the myth? And 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 why is the wall, whether it gets built or not, but the idea of the wall is its tombstone. Yeah. So the myth, the the idea of limits and the idea of scarcity and the idea that that uh, maybe there has to be a better way of organizing politics other than the promise of endless growth, other than the, other than the promise of being able to pull up stakes and move west. Hit, there's different moments of that. And certainly, the Great Depression of the 1930s and the, and, the, and the emergence of the New Deal. The New Deal came on to the political stage, talking about limits, talking about you know as as not something that we need to shy away from, uh, talking about organizing a new conception of social citizenry around the idea of of government intervention to organize limits and to deal with limits. Um, Certainly, uh, the 1970s was another era of limits. Um, the response to the 1970s, though, wasn't was was the opposite of of the New Deal ethic. It, it was Reaganism, uh, ethic of what one Reagan advisor called "more, more, more." You know, just the restoration of the idea of infinity, and. Um, 
I would take that re I would take that restoration of the frontier from Reaganism forward that carried forward through Bush, through Clinton, through Bush, uh, and 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 that's what collapsed. And and the end of the myth, the end of that iteration of the myth. I I in the book I I link very specifically when we get into the details to the war in Iraq is certainly the exhaustion of the neoconservative model, the, you know, the, mili the military missionary impulse, um, the 2007-2008 uh, collapse of the free trade model, and despite that we're in a period of recovery, it's revealed this deep inequality and social immobility. And then hanging over it all is this the ongoing kind of specter of climate change, right? There is a sense that, that, uh, that, that the that you, it is impossible to organize politics around the idea of more, more, more of infinite growth, and and that's where Trump comes in. I think that's where that's where the frontier ideal gives way to the 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 the, the symbol of the wall as a as a as a as a symbol of this race realism that the frontier is closed and we have to organize politics around explicitly lines of, do of domination and you know, which many people in that coalition obviously understood as as domination understood those lines being understood in racial terms but what is gone forever is the notion of an ex ever extending sphere and you quote a wonderful line from Michael Herr about did you remember it all yeah I do remember it it's uh, he was wondering where the where the um, where the Vietnam War started and yeah. uh, Michael Herr was the just was the was the um, reporter during the Vietnam War and he wrote book uh, dispatches and he uh, he he uh, he was um, uh, he wondered when exactly the war had begun, and he writes, you couldn't use standard methods to date the doom. Might as well say that Vietnam was where the Trail of Tears was headed all along, the turnaround point where it would touch and come back to form a containing perimeter. And uh, you get the same thought out of, out of Cormac McCarthy's novel, Blood Meridian. Right? Yeah. So that the, the violence that we hoped constantly push out, uh, you know, the, all the problems that we couldn't solve, that we want to suck out in, in the safety valve, are now coming back on us Yeah, inside the perimeter. Uh, and, damn, I mean, this is the most illuminating book, I mean, I've, I've, in terms of how to connect, you know, I mean, to me, history is the present living in the past and, and the past living in the present. and, and the. And, to understand we, we can't get out of the mess we're in unless we understand where it come from and, yeah. and, and what it is. And, and, and this is an immensely valuable book. And, and, and Greg. Thank you. Thank you so well, much. Thank you for coming. I mean, the, uh, thank you, Greg Brandon, author of The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the mind of America. Thank you again. Thank you, Lewis. Always great to talk with you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. <laughs>